Iowa Republicans have come to agreement on a signature tax cut bill, and the legislative session is still in the month of February. We examine the politics and the policy with a reporter's roundtable on this edition of Iowa Press. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com. For decades, Iowa Press has brought you political leaders and newsmakers from across Iowa and beyond, celebrating 50 years of broadcast excellence on statewide Iowa PBS. This is the Friday, February 25th edition of Iowa Press. Here is Kay Henderson. It's been a newsy week at the Iowa Capitol and really a sobering week on the world stage. And we've assembled a group of reporters to open their notebooks and tell us about the stories they've written this past week to sort of lend some light to what's going on. Katerina Sestarik is joining us today. She is the state government reporter for Iowa Public Radio. Stephen Gruber-Miller is the state house reporter for the Des Moines Register. Aaron Murphy is the Des Moines Bureau Chief for The Gazette in Cedar Rapids. And Dave Price is the political director at WHO TV 13. Is that how we say it in Des Moines? That'll work. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> Let's begin uh, and maybe bring some of our viewers up to speed if they may have had other plans on Thursday night <laughs> and they missed a passage of a major tax bill, cleared the Senate first and then it cleared the House. Uh, Katerina, tell us a little bit about what that bill does. Right. The bill that passed was very similar to what the governor unveiled in her condition of the state address last month. Um, so, But rather than a 4% flat personal income tax, it's a 3.9% flat personal income tax. Um, that would be phased in by 2026. This bill would eliminate all taxes on retirement income, puts in some new tax breaks for retired farmers and people who work for and retire from employee-owned companies. And then there's also some corporate tax cuts in there, as well as some changes to um, some refundable corporate tax credits. Stephen, how did they put corporate tax cuts in there when it wasn't originally in the House plan? And, they see, and we heard Speaker Grassley tell reporters on the House floor, needs more work. Sure, yeah. There were three different kind of ideas about what to do with corporate taxes. The governor wanted to cut to a flat rate of 5.5% from the current rate of 9.8, and that's what they ended up doing. So if corporate revenues exceed a certain threshold, the, the excess revenue will start ratcheting down that tax rate. The House didn't want to touch them, as you said, and unless there was conversation about tax credits for corporations, and that's something the Senate was working on too. So what they're doing is they're reducing how much money corporations can get back from refundable tax credits. That means if you have no tax liability and you claim a refundable credit, the government still cuts you a check. So 
one of those credits, the research activities tax credit, paid out like $44 million last year to big companies. So they're going to cut in half the amount that companies can get from refundable tax credits. And as we talk here, just to throw in here what's notable, not only about what's in the bill, is what's not in the bill. The Senate had proposed a sales tax shift mm-hmm. and to, to use that to trigger funding for the Natural Resources and Outdoors Recreation Fund. House Republicans got a little queasy about that part. As did the governor on the show last week. That's correct. And so that ultimately was not in the final version, although we were told by Senator Dan Dawson that he's going to continue to work on that issue for the rest of the session. So stay tuned on that. So Aaron, sort of take us inside the House and the Senate on Thursday. What were the partisans saying about this bill? Republicans were saying flat and fair. Anybody else around this table hear that once or twice (laughs) over the last few weeks? Um, it, it eventually, as, as Katarina mentioned, it ratches the, the, the tax system down to just one rate for everybody. It's fair for everybody is what the Republicans argued. Democrats said, hold on just a minute. It's not fair because you're giving a bigger tax break to the people at the top of the income scale who will now see their income tax cut in almost in half versus the middle class who was already around that 4% anyways, or, or low-income workers who are already around that 4%, so they're not seeing much of a tax break, so the Democrats don't consider it to be fair. And, and the Republicans will point out, and will like to talk about this, that this ended up being bipartisan. So you had two Democrats in the House, two in the Senate, all went for this. So it's not a totally Republican bill here, but there's enough. You know, They're going to count this as bipartisan, even though you're only talking about a couple members in each chamber. Stephen, folks who read your story in the Des Moines Register um, learned a little bit about the backstory behind maybe why this moved so quickly. Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, so the governor has a big speech coming up next week. She is giving the Republican response to President Biden's State of the Union address, which is, gives her a national stage on which to talk about Iowa's great achievements. So here she has another achievement to talk about with this tax cut bill. Um, the House and Senate Republican leadership said, well, hold on, we were already working on this. Like, we've been talking about it the whole time. Nothing to see here with this timing. But the Democrats were definitely saying, look, this is clearly advantageous to the governor. It gives her something to talk about on the national stage. Nothing to see here, but yet the Senate and the House chose to do all of this in one day. One day, like literally on a weekend during a snowstorm. (laughs) Yeah, we, we first saw the bill at about 11.30 and by 8.30 p.m., it was passed. It, it just reminds us, as we often say uh, in the, covering the legislature, the legislative process moves slowly until they don't want it to, and then it can move as fast as they want. Dave, what do we expect the governor to say in this address on Tuesday evening? Um, I think we know that this tax cut plan will come up, right? That shocker. Will, the shocker that that will give her something to talk about. And I think, I think she will stress some of those themes that she's been talking about, how the state's not locked down, it's open. And it's interesting always to me the way she talks about this, that this anti-mandate, everything is open kind of thing, which is a reverse of what she supported early on during COVID, which she does not talk about. And she did tell me a couple weeks back that that's one of those do-over things she wishes she could do, that they would not have shut down, like shut down schools, all those kind of things uh, that she had supported early on during this, knowing what she knows now. But this, I, um, because I was 
wanted to make sure I had my stuff together on this. I did look through all the governors here, and she is a, she's not quite a unicorn, as my daughter would say, but she is rare in the sense that she is only one of three Republican women who are governors right now. You have one in Alabama who's pushing 80. You have one in South Dakota, and if you just Google her, you will find out why she maybe isn't the rising star that she once was. And then you have Kim Reynolds, which makes her probably a pretty obvious fit for Republicans to give that sort of rebuttal to the president's State of the Union. Okay, jump ball question here. Um, What does being on the stage giving this speech do for her politically? Money. She can raise a ton of money off of this. That's the first thing. Even if there's no other benefit to her, it gets her in front of a national audience who might say, hey, I like what I'm hearing. I might give some money for her re-election race this year. Beyond that, it puts her deeper into a conversation about some national office, perhaps, in 2024. It, it's, an, it's I wouldn't say easy, but it's an opportunity for her to put herself out there for that while she can still credibly say, like, listen, I'm not necessarily pursuing that, but I'm just kind of seeing what I hear, what I hear back from the, the response to this. And we have some recent tangible evidence on this from right here in Iowa in 2015. U.S. Senator Joni Ernst gave this same response to the State of the Union, and uh, within a short time after that, we were hearing that she was on the short list of possible vice presidential candidates. Dave? And told Donald Trump she didn't want to be (laughs) vice president uh, later on in that. And the whole thing is fascinating to me in that Reynolds has never really, in conversations with her, seemed to express any interest in working working in D.C., and she's talked about how she wants to live here, but... She has very much, to me, been an example here of how we always hear all politics is local, but how all of this politics is nationalized now. And, and we can point out several of the issues that Republican legislators are working on this session with banning books, those kind of things, opening schools, whatever, tax cuts. But she very much focuses on how bad Joe Biden is during a lot of her speeches rather than, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a Democratic opponent in my reelection race. And- and part of that is because I think she doesn't feel very challenged in her re-election race. Yeah, so she can run against Joe Biden, basically, who is extremely unpopular in Iowa, the polling has Kat- Katerina, you mentioned the governor's speech on January 11th when she laid out her agenda for legislators. Um, one of her top agenda points, which she's making a second try with, is the student's first scholarship. Um, what is the status of that in the legislature? So those would be scholarships for up to 10,000 kids to go to private schools, and that would be state-funded. The status of that is kind of, it seems like it's kind of hanging in the balance right now. Um, The Senate Republicans advanced that ahead of a key deadline recently. Um, The House Speaker, um, while the House Republicans never held a vote on it, the House Speaker used his power to kind of save it at the last minute Mm -hmm. from falling to that deadline. And it seems like there's still some negotiations going on where whatever passes might not be exactly what the governor proposed in terms of that, but it seems like it still has some kind of chance of passing. And and part of the reason this has been a harder lift is, unlike other private schools, tuition assistance programs that are just kind of a separate pot of money. This literally does take money that's dedicated to the public school in that area and shift it to go with the student. And you have concerns, especially in rural school districts, about what that could do to their funding if a, a number of students from that district were to take this, take that money with them, 
and then leave that district uh, with that much less funds to try to operate with. And, and in the House Republican caucus in particular, that, that's where this has run into resistance because of that. And, and even fundamentally, uh, private school is not an option for a lot of these rural families because there isn't one that's nearby. If you have somehow have the means to drive your kid 30 minutes each way, 45 minutes each each way to pull this off. But don't you think that's one additional factor that some of these legislators have talked about that even if fundamentally they believe in it that tax dollars should help kids go to private school, it's not an option for a lot of kids depending on where they live. So, Stephen, I know what sources are telling me about this. What are sources telling you about the prospects in the House? Yeah, I mean, the opposition to this seems to run pretty deep. You mentioned that uh, she, the governor had tried last year to do this similar similar program. She's changed the bill now in an effort to get more support. But it's not really clear to me that that's going to be successful because the people, the Republican legislators in the House who are opposed to what they say are vouchers for private schools are just fundamentally opposed, right? It's It's not necessarily doesn't necessarily seem to be a question of can I tweak this and get somebody on board a lot of the opposition appears to be like they think it will hurt schools in their district and they're concerned now that said I what Katerina said is correct they are negotiating they are trying to figure out some new language but um, I don't know whether or not that's going to be successful so last week as I was covering the legislature for Radio Iowa my my full-time gig uh, it seemed like Almost every story I wrote was about some education bill that was percolating through the legislature. Aaron, what's a live round in terms of education policy and what's just sort of trial balloon out there? Yeah, there are a couple of big ones, and I'll, I'll just pick one uh, that came up more, more recently, which is uh, this issue of books and, and educational curriculum that parents may have an objection to, may feel that there's obscene material in them. Um, and, and what's interesting about this as a kind of a broader legislative, um, from a legislative perspective, is you have different legislators taking different approaches at this. Um, some, some are just calling for more transparency in what books and curriculum materials are in schools. Some want to go a little farther by literally making it a crime. Uh, a lot to, farther. To, yeah, <laughs> a lot farther. To literally make it a crime uh, for teachers to, to distribute these materials in a class. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see which approach ultimately wins out there. And, and we see, uh, especially in the Senate, a shift because they ran the governor's bill, which was more focused on the just the transparency side. But after that meeting, the legislators said, we need more teeth in that transparency and this, aspect. Yeah, and this issue of trans education, getting parents to know what's going on in schools, like this ties back to the, the governor's private school proposal as well. One of her big campaign themes, and really the theme for a lot of Republicans this year, is going to be to say, we opened schools, we got parents involved. Mm -hmm. So the private school portion of that is about giving parents choice. The transparency aspect of that, it all ties together, and so... You know, if it's too difficult of a lift to get consensus around private schools, it may be easier to get consensus around this transparency piece, and then they can run on it this fall as well. The governor also unveiled some speedier ways, if you will, to become a classroom teacher, mm -hmm. um, some apprenticeships. Um, is that sort of in the mix of, if we're not going to do students first, we do teachers? 
Yeah, when, when I hear from educators on this, what I hear about those bills is those are great, those are helpful, thank you, do that, that may help here and there, um, but there's bigger problems to solving the teacher shortage, which is what these bills are interested in getting to. So um, it, it's kind of a nipping around the edges type of approach. House Republicans also passed a bill that would provide an extra $19 million to schools, not to hire teachers, but to hire pretty much every other staff person in the room. Stephen, what do you think the prospects are? Well, I think that last year House Republicans tried to do like a one-time supplemental mm -hmm. bill for education too, and I, I don't think that ended up passing the Senate. So it seems to be an approach that in the House they like to take to give a little boost. And, and the way they talked about it this year was that it was in response to some of the high inflation that we've seen. Uh, that doesn't seem to be an approach that the Senate likes to take. And in the negotiation over state supplemental aid for schools, we already saw the Senate come up a little bit from its initial proposal to match the House at, at that ultimate number of 2.5%. And there doesn't seem to be this big commitment to funding education as a whole here. So even though that would be, it seems like fundamentally a way to kind of work into this to just say, all right, here's a chunk of money to kind of get you through this year when we're going to give you 2.5% increase in funding when inflation is three times that. There isn't this kind of big picture commitment that we're going to throw a bunch of money and fix our schools. Katarina, shifting gears here, you and I covered a really interesting subcommittee hearing about policy regarding carbon pipelines that are being proposed in Iowa. What did you hear? There was some tension in the room. Um, there were several landowners there who were asking lawmakers for protection against the use of eminent domain to build these privately owned carbon pipelines. And then you had some lobbyists for the pipelines in the room who were you know, trying to give their side of the story saying, you can't change the rules on us now because we're already partway through this process. And then you had some senators who were not happy to hear what the lobbyists had to say. Um, and, you know, while the bill they were considering, which would have completely restricted the use of eminent domain for these pipelines, it didn't advance. Um, there was definitely, there's definitely lawmakers, more rank and file lawmakers, I would say, in the legislature who have been expressing concerns about these pipelines. And it really um, transcends party lines, too. It's not necessarily... A Republican or Democrat issue. Yeah, and what are they going to do about it? So Republicans, in killing this bill, were working against some of their constituents back home, right? So that's where, I mean, they have this rural support. That's one of the reasons why they are where they are. And, and so against the idea of private property land rights, which is typically a Republican. What, exactly. Opinion. So there, you're going to allow a private company to come in and mandate terms with Do local property owners. you want to talk about owners. the private company? Uh, owned by Bruce Rassiter. Now, one of, the, one of the three things that have floated around in the state, but obviously Bruce has been a big Republican donor to a lot of campaigns, including Terry Branstead, who's on the payroll to, to help Rassiter's company here to try to make this go through. And that thing is one of the most fascinating debates, I think, to watch this year because it just puts this business interest versus local property rights and which side they're going to do. They had a chance to ban this. This got killed. So, so now what when you have some of these legislators who don't like this big company coming in here mandating the terms here? And they can argue that, you know, voluntarily they're working to get terms with these property landowners, but... 
clearly, t- to your point, some of these landowners don't want to settle. They don't want this in any way, and they said, this thing's got to happen, build it along right away that are already roads right there, which is the longer path, more expensive path. So I think this one, I just think, I don't know what the, what the what's next in this is, but it's just fascinating. Speaking of we don't know what's next, Katerina, um, people who listen to Iowa Public Radio heard your report about important arguments before the Iowa Supreme Court this week. What's going on? There was a case heard in the Iowa Supreme Court this week over a 24-hour abortion waiting period, um, but it's a much larger issue than that. This could have much bigger implications because the governor and a bunch of lawmakers are asking the Supreme Court to overturn state-level abortion rights protections so that they can further restrict abortion because right now it's very difficult for them to do that. Um, And come June, we could be seeing a decision from the Iowa Supreme Court and a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court on Roe v. Wade um, that could leave basically zero legal protections for abortion rights in Iowa, um, which it'll really come down to the 2022 elections of the future of abortion access. Stephen, there's also a movement in the legislature to sort of make sure that the state doesn't confer in any way uh, right to abortion. Yeah, Katerina referenced this, but the Iowa Supreme Court ruled in 2018 that the Iowa Constitution does protect the right to abortion. Ever since then, Republicans have been doing whatever they can to get that ruling overturned. They're pursuing it in this 24-hour waiting period case, but they're also pursuing it in the form of a potential constitutional amendment saying that the Iowa Constitution does not secure a right to abortion. So it's basically, and that, they need to, the legislature needs to pass that still again, uh, next year before it could appear on a 2024 ballot. But it's definitely, you know, an issue that they've been pushing on all fronts. And I think, like Katerina said, it will be, uh, if, if there are significant abortion rulings in June in Iowa and at the federal level, this could become a major campaign issue and people might really find that the landscape has changed and it might be much harder to access an abortion. And that could be one thing for Democrats that galvanizes them, that puts a little juice in their base, which is really juiceless or not, not full of juice, at least right now. Um, Dave, you and I on Wednesday evening covered former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, one of his many visits to Iowa uh, recently after, during his um, tenure at the State Department and after. Um, obviously, he was speaking as things were happening on the ground in Ukraine. What did you learn? Uh, he's much smaller than when he was here before. That was one, That's but that was correct. one thing. He's lost 90 pounds. <laughs> uh, he has lost, lost 90 pounds here. And I uh, just had a foot surgery, so he was hobbling around on, on one leg in a little cart as well. But, um, yeah, it's interesting the way he's uh, – he made so many Iowa references to but also kept talking about Kansas, which makes – Makes you curious about whether he's thinking about running for something back home or whether he wants some kind well, of... Well, let's bring people up to speed. The the senator from Kansas, who I believe is in his late 80s, has announced he's going to retire, so right. that seat's going to become open. Exactly. So maybe he's looking at that as well. But there could not have been better timing for him to be sharing that stage with Terry Branstead and Joni Ernst talking about what was going on in in Ukraine. And some of what he said, I thought, echoed a lot of the Republican criticism that Biden should have done more earlier to try to warn Putin, hey, don't do this, don't do this attack, get those sanctions out there. But I also didn't think he talked about Trump a lot. He never, he made one joke, I think, on stage about Trump that he constantly checked his Twitter feed to make sure he hadn't been fired, which is, uh, I think, Branstad probably also 
uh, had people doing that when he was serving uh, in the Trump administration as well. But it does seem like he's trying to lay out some kind of path here for the just in case I want to do something. Erin, um, Joni Ernst was also on that panel, and for people who are familiar with her biography, she went to Ukraine when she was a college student at Iowa State. Um, she's been fairly vocal about um, what she believes the Biden administration should have done and should be doing. Yeah, she feels that the Biden administration hasn't been as strong um, in its um, actions against uh, taken uh, to try and slow Russia uh, and, and the actions that they've taken. She would have liked to have seen more uh, action taken by the federal government, by the administration. And I, and I spoke with Senator Chuck Grassley on Wednesday, who made a similar point. He was saying to me, and this is before the invasion began, but he was saying that he wished that the Biden administration would have been more clear about the sanctions they were prepared to impose, like said that sort of early and loudly uh, as a deterrent factor. Uh, finally, just very quickly, on this program last week, uh, Governor Reynolds uh, was asked about ending the pandemic proclamation. Uh, just a yes or a no. Will this be a major issue in the fall campaign? We'll start with Dave and go around the no. table. Stephen? It's going to depend on how people are feeling like their lives are affected by COVID. Katerina? I don't think it will be, Aaron. I think we'll hear about it. I don't think the voters will cast a ballot because of this, one way or the other. Well, I am voting right now, and I have to tell you that my vote is we have to end this discussion <laughs> because we are out of time. I Thank object. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, all of you, for joining um, the conversation and telling the folks out there what's going on at the state level. For those of you who are regular viewers of this program, you are watching us at 7.30 over the air on a Friday night. We will not be on the air on this Sunday because uh, of fundraising here at Iowa PBS. You can always watch Iowa PBS. You can always watch Iowa Press on iowapbs.org. For everyone here at Iowa PBS, thanks for watching. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com.